Father in heaven, one last time we come to you here at camp meeting, at least like this, and we appeal to you again to speak to us again. We know you can. We know you want to. We pray that you would. I pray that our hearts would be open, our ears would be likewise open. Lord, give us grace to see and hear now what we ought. Uh, Don't allow us to see and hear what we should not. Don't let us be distracted. Camp meeting's about ended. We want to be blessed again. So if you would, Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit. When we go from this place, when we leave these grounds, we want to be able to say we, we, were, we were close to you. We want to be able to say we want to be close to you forever. That's our prayer now, and so we pray. Make this time yours. Make it count for your glory. We pray and plead with grateful hearts in Jesus' name, amen. You know that every quadrennium, every four years, our planet focuses its attention on a festival, a festival that is at once a celebration of athletic excellence and pharmaceutical ingenuity. The last Olympic Games were held in Rio de Janeiro, that's correct, Brazil. Russia was to send 389 athletes. However, the International Olympic Committee disinvited 111 of them. Do not come, Russia was told. That is, don't send all of these. There were a bunch of them told to stay home. The Paralympics operated with slightly more spine than the other Olympics, telling Russia, simply don't come, don't bring a team. It was determined rightly, that the Russians had been cheating. There was a doping program in place. Athletes were cheating on doping tests. All kinds of things were happening. It was a state-sponsored cheating enterprise. And so, Russia, keep many of your athletes home. On the one hand, stay home altogether. On the other, bunch of people were disqualified in 2016. You know that until very recently, they're still disqualifying athletes from 2008 Beijing and 2012 London because as they retest samples that were taken with more sophisticated methods, they're discovering even more drug cheats. Rio de Janeiro disqualified a weightlifter from Kyrgyzstan, a swimmer from China, An athlete from Kazakhstan, a cyclist from Brazil, a canoeist from uh, from Moldova, a weightlifter from Mongolia, a boxer from Russia, a weightlifter from Romania, and more. Before the Rio de Janeiro Games, there were others told not to come. You're cheating. A Bulgarian steeplechaser, a Greek swimmer, a Cypriot weightlifter, an Irish boxer, an Indian wrestler, a Polish weightlifter, another Polish... Boy, the weightlifters, what is it with weightlifters? Those of us with memories that go back a little bit will remember that in the year 1988, the Olympic Games were held in, it was 84, Seoul, South Korea. And we watched, some of us, as the men lined up to begin the 100 meters track event. The greatest athlete of all time, still the greatest athlete of all time, lined up in that race. His name? Carl Lewis. We expected Carl Lewis to win because that's what Carl Lewis did. Tremendous photograph taken of Carl Lewis midway through the race, looking this direction or this direction, looking one direction or another. 
with absolute disbelief on his face because a fellow born in Jamaica at the age of 14 immigrated to Canada. His name was Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson screamed down the track, breasted the tape first place, lowered his own world record, ran the 100 meters in 9.79 seconds. If you get out your slide rule and do some calculations, you will discover that that is slightly faster than lightning. Boom! Carl Lewis came second. Now, Carl Lewis, if you do the reading required to pass this test, you discover that there's an asterisk by Carl Lewis's name. But Ben Johnson had a little help. Help in the form of an anabolic steroid known as stanozolol. Ben Johnson went from hero to zero overnight. He was a cheat. Later on, he said that the world record he set prior to Seoul was likewise set under the influence of performance-enhancing drugs. And so the IAAF expunged that from the record books as well. But drug use at the Olympic Games goes back further than 1988. Now, the first Olympic Games that I remember, 1972. Now, I know, I know, you're surprised by that, but some of you, some of you could certainly remember Athens in 1896, but I cannot. <laughs> Best I can do is 1972, and that's hazy, because of two reasons, the terrible tragedy that took place at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And in 1972, a fellow from my hometown of Ngaruawahia in New Zealand won a gold medal, Alan Cotter. We used to buy gas at uh, Colin Cotter's gas station. We went to school with the Cotter kids, and my brother was in uh, Alan Cotter's class. He was the coxswain of the men's rowing eight, and we steamed to glory, or rowed to glory, uh, in Munich in 1972, which reminds me. Being from New Zealand, we have, a, we have a proud Olympic tradition in New Zealand. We've, we've, we've turned out some, some Olympic greats. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with all of them, so I won't bore you with the details. Uh, <clears throat> but with a small country, when I was a kid, there was 3.3 million people. Now there's 4.5 million people, you know. And, and, and we, are, we are happy when we have uh, winners like Alan Cotter and the, the, the men's rowers in 1972 that the Olympic men's hockey team in 1976, that's field hockey. How we won that gold medal, no one understands. It may have been performance-enhancing drugs, I don't know. That was a joke. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Not New Zealand, not New Zealand. It's a funny old thing. Every Olympic Games, since we've expected the men's hockey team to win another gold medal, they won't win another gold medal if the Olympics go for another 10,000 years. But we value our, our medal winners so much. Here's what you do when you're from a country like New Zealand. Here's what you do. You look at the website and you see the medal table. It has first, second, third. It has the top 10 and then New Zealand, which typically is in about 14th, 15th, or 16th place, which is pretty good for a country with four and a half million people. But we do something that you all don't do in the United States, or I guess we all don't do in the United States, and that is that there is another tab that you can click. So, medal winners, and then medals won per capita. <laughs> and suddenly we leap from 15th or 18th or 14th, whoom, right up to number one or number two or number one or number three, right around. Now, if it wasn't for Usain Bolt and the Croatians, I'm the only person here who knows that Croatia had a pretty good Olympic Games. And the reason I know is that I'm watching, you know, we're hard up, you know, for, for glory. I'm watching the medals won per capita. I'm saying, What's going on with Croatia? I don't know what they won, but they kind of outdid us. Uh, so you know how that goes. 1976, that's the one I really remember. And that's when things get interesting regarding performance-enhancing drugs. 1976, as of course you remember, John Walker from New Zealand won the men's 1500 meters track event. Again, I'm the only person in the house who remembers who came second in the men's 1500 meters in 1976. It was a fellow named I the late Ivo Van Damme from Belgium. 
big tall fellow with, with, with flowing blonde locks. And the reason we remember that, of course, is he got about that close to John Walker. That wasn't good at all. Then 1976, something really fascinating happened. You know, in the United States, we love a winner. Second place, pff, we could care less, but a winner we love. And there was a swimmer, a female swimmer, who was expected to return back from, where was it, 1976? Montreal, Canada. She was expected to come back with a shoebox filled up with gold medals. Her name was Shirley Babishoff. Now, Shirley Babishoff swam like lightning. She was fantastic. She came home with one gold medal. How the women's four by 100 meter freestyle relay won is hard to understand, but when they did. The reason uh, Shirley Babishoff did not come home with gold medals was that she came up against the buzzsaw known as the East German women's swim team. And the East German women's swim team found themselves on the receiving end of something called State Program 14.25. It was instituted by the government of East Germany, desperate to show the world the glories of Eastern European communism. If they pumped up their athletes and drugged them to medal-winning performances, then the world would see how glorious East Germany was. On that swimming team, there was a statuesque, solidly built swimmer, tall, blonde, blue-eyed. Her name was Cornelia Ender. Now, there's a reason why I described her as I described her. Not too terribly long before the Olympic Games, she was tall, blonde, blue-eyed, and kind of skinny. But by the time Montreal rolled around, she was no longer skinny. She thought her bulk was the result of her very hard training and the dietary program, the nutrition that she was being supplied. Well, she trained hard and she was eating good food, but she'd also been pumped up by state program 14.25, which meant that while Shirley Babishoff was swimming this direction, Cornelia Ender was, was swimming downhill. She was being towed to the finish line or propelled by performance-enhancing drugs. Shirley Babishoff was dubbed by the American media Surly Shirley because she was seen to be kind of uh, down, sour, frowning a lot at Montreal. That's because she knew then what the media knows now but didn't understand then. As one American swimmer said in Montreal, I could swim like that too if I was a man. A friend of mine told me this story. It's, it's as true as the day is long. He was a swimmer for Penn State University at about that time. And so he knew the swimmers on the American swim team. In Montreal, this has is, this is not been reported in the media. You heard it here first. In Montreal, the American women's swim team was in a locker room, and they heard deep voices, deep voices in the women's locker room. They were alarmed. They went to investigate, and there were the East German women. So one of them said, my, what deep voices you have. And one of the East German women replied and said, we didn't come here to sing. Shirley Babishoff did not come home from Montreal to a spot on the lucrative celebrity speaker circuit. She did not get a uh, deal with Speedo to wear their clothing. She came home to her job delivering the mail for the United States Postal Service in Orange County, California, and anonymity. State program 14.25. One East German weightlifter, a fellow named Gerhard Bonk, consumed in one calendar year more performance-enhancing drugs than any human being has ever done. He set world records. Silver in the weightlifting in Montreal, beaten out by a fellow named Vasily Alexiev. Uh, some men you describe as looking like they were carved out of the side of a mountain. Other men you just describe as looking like a mountain. That was Vasily Alexiev. 
He won the gold, Gerhard Bonk. Never an athlete with a cooler name. Gerhard Bonk came second. He came home from Montreal, not long after was confined to a wheelchair. Organ failure. He spent three decades in a wheelchair, died in his early 60s. This is why we don't believe in performance-enhancing drugs. For one, particularly then, they destroyed people. Women who ended up having all kinds of challenges, essentially developing all kinds of male characteristics. It was difficult, really, really difficult physically for people. But then there's the, there's the cheating aspect. None of us wanted to believe that Lance Armstrong was cheating. I didn't want to believe that. This cancer survivor, this tenacious competitor, this man who ran the, the great charity helping so many people. Now the, the, the French, after all these tours de France, they whined. They whined about Lance Armstrong. I said, they whined because they're French. Of course they whined. That's our guy, Lance Armstrong. He wouldn't cheat. Oh, yes, he did. He cheated. Man, he, he, I'll tell you why he cheated. Because you were thinking to yourself, oh, man, these cheats, these immoral cheats, how could they do that? I'd like you to stop and think. If you were an athlete who'd given your life to pursuing athletic glory, and you know that the gold medal is one thing, but your picture on the Wheaties box, that's another. That's where the money is. If you know that, that shaving three-tenths of a second off your personal best might be enough to vault you from fourth to first, or third to first, or second to first, man, that's, that's the difference between well done and glory. Think about that. Think of the money. Think of the rest of your life. Think now that your children can attend any school they wish. Money won't be an object. Think. You'd have to be tempted, wouldn't you? Lance Armstrong, the reason he got into the blood doping was because he competed in the Tour de France. He was cycling up, I think it's the Pyrenees, they cycle up there, the French Alps. And cyclists were going past him as though he was going backwards. He said, what they're doing just isn't human. How are they doing it? He discovered. And he said to himself, I can never beat them unless I beat them at their own game. He realized that his best was not good enough. How would you feel? When I, when I was in school, you know, I knew that in our little school when we had running races, I was good for third. Third was good. I ran well, but there were a couple of guys who ran really, really well. Uh, only way I could beat them was by tripping them up or, or, or shooting them or something. Even then, I probably wouldn't win. I, I couldn't win. I couldn't. Long distance, couldn't beat me. 100 meters, no way I could win. My best just wasn't good enough. And I understood that. Now, let's think for a moment. This is only sport. And sport, really, is the sort of thing that Solomon would have written about in the book of Ecclesiastes and said, that's vanity. We think the Super Bowl is important. Athletes, not athletes, advertisers pay four and a half million dollars for 30 seconds. And we remember who wins the Super Bowl for about two days. And after that, it's not important anymore. The nation sort of stops. I mean, like, your part of the nation may not, but you know that well over 100 million people in the United States and then many more around the world watch that event live. It's huge. The fact is, if I asked you who won the Super Bowl in 2012, you couldn't tell me. If you could tell me, there might be something wrong. <laughs> we don't know because, honestly, it's just not that important. But there is a principle here, and that is that sometimes your best is not good enough. Athletics, sport, football, baseball, whatever it might be, hardly matters. But what if, spiritually, you come to the conclusion that your best isn't good enough? Now, you might have to come face to face with that reality. As a matter of fact, if you're ever going to go to heaven, you'd better figure that out. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe it's verse 24. He said, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receives the prize. 
And then he said, so run that ye may obtain. Paul was alluding to the ancient games. He said, you know, a whole bunch of people run in a race, but there's only one winner. He says, so run to what? Help me now, run to what? Run to win. If you were like me running in the school cross country, you thought, that's okay, I've got this. But if you're like me lining up on the 100 meters, you're thinking, I'll do okay, but I won't win. It's not possible. There are better runners than me here. Imagine this spiritually now. Run to win. And yet the Bible says that all of us have sinned and have come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. And so we try and we fail. We pray harder and then we fail harder. Maybe we fast. And it just doesn't seem to do the job. Doesn't rid us of this heart that is broken and weak and corrupt. And we say, Paul is saying, run to win. But the truth is, no matter how hard I run, my best isn't good enough. So what do we do about that? We could despair. We could look at our weakness. We could say, I've been battling self and self keeps winning. We could look at our failures. We could look at other people. We could look at what we ought to be. But even that is a loser's game. There's one thing that we can do that will grant, let's call it success. Let's call it victory. That's what Paul was talking about. I want to take you there in Luke chapter 11 to our scripture reading. Luke chapter 11. Let's turn there. Luke 11. And we'll pick it up where, oh, let's say, let's say verse 9. I'll start reading while you're turning. That's okay. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Three times in Luke 11 and verse 9, Jesus used the word, shall. This will be done, Jesus said. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And then he said, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Now notice what he's saying here. If the son asks the dad for something, and these are reasonable things, the dad is going to give. Now, you know, I, I, I vowed and declared before my wife and I had children, we will never spoil our children. Of course, we never have. It's tough, though, isn't it? Because you want to give your kids the things they want. You want to. This is what Jesus was talking about. Son asks you for something, and, and these were all, as I said, very reasonable things. You want to give them. You just do. You know, my daughter, she won't mind me telling this because this is just the truth. My daughter figured me out a while ago. In fact, it was on a trip to Michigan on the way home. She, she just nailed it. You know, my daughter go clothes shopping with her mother, and her mother has this thing where it's like, hey, Mom, I really need jeans. What do you think? And, and Melissa will say, Oh, yeah, they're good. What's the price? Try them on. Mm. Let's go to the next store, see what they got. Go to the next store. Shannon is thinking, these work? But we'll go to the next store. Try on another pair. What do you think of these? Oh, not bad. What's the price? Let me see how they look. Mm. There's another store we need to look at. And then they go to the third store. And I don't care if she says I'm exaggerating. I'm the one with the microphone. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, okay, they, they were, we need to think about that. Think about that. Shannon, I've been, Shannon, I've been thinking about this for weeks. We don't need to do any more thinking about that. So we're heading back from, from uh, uh, Michigan. You know, we stop in Indianapolis. There's a big, beautiful mall there. And Shannon needs all of these clothes. She says, Dad, I need some jeans. Yes, yes, let's get you some jeans into the jeans store. And she says, Dad, I like these. Try them on. Do they fit? Yeah, they fit. Look at this. I said, great, let's get them. As a matter of fact, let's get two pairs. All right, Dad. 
I need shorts as well. Well, do you like these? Sure. How many do you need? Two, uh, three. I need three. Well, you better grab them. I'm sure we need t-shirts, right? We're off to the t-shirt store. I like this one, Dad. I'll get it. And I like this one, Dad. Better get that. And I like <laughs> Credit card company is sending an SOS to my wife. There's something going on in Carmel, Indiana. <laughs> well, I figure she needs them, right? I figure the way to a daughter's heart is through her wardrobe. I'm not beyond bribery. <laughs> when your children ask you for something, you want to, don't you? If this is reasonable, you want to. They're my kids. I want them to be happy. I want them to have what they need. I even want them to have what they want. Now and then. So Jesus says here, if you have children asking you for something, what kind of a father is going to give a scorpion to a son who asks for an egg? Who, who when a kid says, Dad, I like a fish. Here, take a serpent. Have a snake. How's this? Do you like that? The father wants to give the children the good stuff. Amen. Jesus then, having established that, says, If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Ah, there we are. The Holy Spirit. Your best is not good enough. And so Jesus said, I'm going to die go to heaven, but then I will send you another comforter. I will come to you personally in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God brings into our lives the personal presence of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus bring when he comes into our lives? Listen, we don't need to be thinking for a moment that we ought to be good to go to heaven. Good people don't get to go to heaven. Heaven's not for the good. Heaven is for holy people. Heaven is for righteous people. And you cannot work yourself up into a state of holiness. You cannot buy righteousness. You cannot practice righteousness. You'll never deserve righteousness. You cannot earn righteousness. Righteousness comes from one place. No, no, not from Righteousness isn't a commodity like gasoline. You go to the gas station, you fill up, needle gets all the way over there to F, and you drive a week, and now it's down at E, and you say, I need more gas. I must go to the gas station. That's not how righteousness works. Righteousness isn't gotten, I hate that word, gotten from Christ. We don't receive righteousness from Christ. We receive righteousness in Christ. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out how this idea of in Christ ever became complicated. You surrender to Jesus, you are in Christ. You give your heart to Jesus, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And when you are in Christ, you possess the righteousness of Christ because you are bound up inextricably, indissolubly with Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't come in gradually. He doesn't come in and say, oh, I'm just checking this out. I'm inspecting. Uh, I'll stay the night, but I'm just bringing my sleeping bag. In a week, I'll really move in. When you yield your life to Jesus, Jesus fills you with his presence. What does he bring? He brings his obedience. He brings his power. He brings his righteousness. Now you don't need to be worrying about being good enough to go to heaven. You should never look at yourself and say, I am not good enough. You must always look to Jesus and say, Jesus and only Jesus is and always will be good enough. Go on and say amen tonight. Friend, our hope is in Jesus. We need, we need help. We are broken and weak, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The difference is 
Christ and what Jesus does. There is a tremendous Adventist verse in the Bible. It's Ephesians 2 and verse 8. It says, for by grace are ye saved. Through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We believe we experience justification by faith. But don't be thinking sanctification comes by works. That comes by faith as well. And if there's one thing that God's people don't do, and I mean this, of course, generally, let's give themselves enough space to grow. And let me ask you a question. The middle school teacher with three beautiful little kids and the, and the, and the, and the model husband and the idyllic life who has a bad day and she goes home and she knows that she's, she's failed God on a couple of occasions. And so she kneels by her bed at night and she says, Oh God, forgive me, I'm, I'm truly sorry, creating me a clean, clean heart. Does God forgive her? Does God give her Jesus' righteousness in the place of her sins? Yes, he does. And the righteousness of Christ, as a matter of fact, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said it's the righteousness of God. That's some heavy-duty righteousness. So what kind of righteousness does Jesus give us? Give me a word. Uh, what was that one? Holy, yes. What'd you say back there? Oh, you might get somebody in trouble using that word. Uh, complete? Is it complete righteousness? Hey, hey, you better have some confidence here. If it's not complete righteousness, then we're all up the creek without a paddle. So when Jesus comes into your life, he brings his holy, perfect, complete righteousness. The middle school teacher from Mayberry, does she have that righteousness from Jesus? Yes, yes, she does. Now, there's a drunk wandering home. He trips on a curb, stumbles and falls in the gutter, vomits on himself, passes out, wakes up with a headache later, laying in his own filth. And he remembers, man, I should be better than this. My mother warned me. My father has appealed to me and told me he's praying for me. I remember going to Sabbath school as a child. I remember being a junior deacon in the church. I remember going after Andrews University. I remember making my way in the world and then, and then getting caught up and then drifting. And now look at me. I'm so far from God. God, forgive me of my sin. Is he forgiven? All right. Lord, accept me as your child. Does he do so? Lord, take away my sin. Is the sin gone? Does he receive the righteousness of Christ? What kind of righteousness? It, can we call it complete? Yes. Yes, it's complete righteousness. Does he have some growing to do? Yes, he better go home and take a shower first thing. So he goes home. He says, I've got to get off the booze. He pours the booze down the sink. He says, that's it. I never drink again. And he never does. So he's off to a good start. But he's still smoking. He's got to explain this to his living girlfriend. He's got a job where he works six days a week. His day off is Tuesday. Wait, did he receive the righteousness of Christ? Yes or no? Yes, he did. But what is he now in the process of doing? He's growing with his eyes fixed on Jesus. The next day he goes, what? Throws away the cigarettes. I don't know. Maybe it's a day late. He goes home. He says, sweetie, we got to talk. She says, yeah, you change. You're different. I, I, my bags are packed already takes him a little time. He speaks to the boss. But you know what he's doing, don't you? He is growing in the grace of God. Yes or no? He's growing. Look, man, take your eyes off your sin. What I mean by that is if you are obsessing about your inadequacy, you will always be inadequate. Instead, obsess about Christ's inadequacy. Christ's adequacy. Your weakness, or wait, God's strength is made perfect in what? God can hardly help you if you are strong. It's the weak where God's strength is made perfect. So you see sin in your life? Okay. You shouldn't be surprised. We are faulty and flawed and sinful and growing. What do you do then? You turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim as by beholding you become changed. Nobody was ever changed into a saint by beholding their own weakness. 
No, 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 don't, don't misquote me or take me out of context. I'm not saying ignore it. I'm not saying it's okay. Sin is not. We were reminded during prayer time this morning we are living in the time of heaven's final judgment. God wants to expel sin from our lives. How do you do that? Fill yourself up with Jesus. Well, you can't do that. Invite Jesus to fill you with his presence. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Behold him in the sanctuary in heaven. He is in the most holy place, pleading his blood for you. Now, some of you are singing a choir, you, 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 you help out in communion service. You have no trouble believing that. There are some others of us here tonight, we're thinking, man, me, really? Yes, really. Yes, you. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And so tonight, if you say, well, I'm a lost person, hallelujah, you realize the truth. Solomon, Ellen White said, was never so great as when he said, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. He wasn't backing himself. He was recognizing his weakness recognizing that he needed help, the help of God. And when he made that realization, God said, I am here for you. And he enjoyed God's blessing as his eyes were on the God of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you building on today? What are you building on? Jesus said there was somebody who built a house but built it on the sand when the winds came and the flood rose up, the rain beat down. That house fell because it was built on the sand. But Jesus said, there was somebody, and he said, this is a person who hears my sayings and does them. When the rain came down and the floods came up, that house stood firm because it was, it was built on a rock. You know, in San Francisco today, there's a 58-story condominium tower called the Millennium Tower. They call it one of the 10 best uh, residential buildings in the world. Now, you think Dubai, London, New York City, Tokyo, this must be quite a place. A lady was, was, was practicing her putting on the, in the living room of a 57th floor condo, as you do, practicing her putting. And she, and she discovered she had this golf ball she, uh, she called it her Bernie Sanders ball because whenever she would putt with the ball, it kind of veered way off to the left. She would hit that thing. She said, what's going on here? Then there were cracks appeared down in the, in, the, in the car park underneath the building. It was discovered that the Millennium Tower has sunk 18 inches. A little settling's not so surprising, Patronus Towers in Kuala Lumpur, that's settled about three to four inches. But the Millennium Tower's a foot and a half. Not only that, it's leaning now. Ah, it's leaning. It's not quite the leaning tower of San Francisco, but it's leaning enough that when the dear lady putts on the 57th floor, the ball goes off in this direction. There's a discernible lean. And so, of course, they're scurrying to try to figure out this thing. And everybody's going, it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. They say it's because they dug a tunnel for a transit center. The tunnel is 60 feet away from the foundation of the building. That's what's done it. Oh no, others said, can't be that. Maybe it's the fact that the foundations go down 80 feet into sand. The rock is at 240 feet or 220 feet. Now, I don't know why that thing is leaning like it's leaning, but I can tell you for sure it was not built upon a rock. Listen, if you're leaning, listing, sinking, it probably is because you have not built upon the rock, not hearing the sayings of Jesus and allowing Jesus to work out his work in your life. The Bible says in Philippians 1 and verse 6, that he which hath begun a good work in you is faithful to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We let God do his work. There is one whose power is mightier than we, that is Jesus. He will come into your life through the Holy Spirit and transform you. Make you what you cannot make yourself. Listen, we must have this. We must have this in our homes. 
before another church family splits up in divorce. We must have this in our homes before another husband is embarrassed because his addiction has been made public. And don't think that doesn't happen around our places because it does. We must have this in our churches before more of God's people get caught up, so caught up in the world, they forget which direction heaven is in and they lose their taste for holiness and the things of God altogether. We must have the power of Jesus in our lives. You know that there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape so you may be able to bear it. No, 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 the devil didn't make you do it. The temptation was not too strong because when you cry out to God, he will empty heaven of every angel if he has to. Send them to your aid to give you strength in your time of need. Yes, your God is mighty. Yes, Jesus is powerful to save. Yes, he wants to do that work in your life. And he will if you will invite him to do it. And just get out of his way while he gets the work done in your life. Christ is preparing a people for heaven now. We must be in it. You know what? You can't come to camp meeting once, five times, 15 times, 25 times, and then be on the outside of the holy city looking in instead of on the inside looking out. What in the world? Prayed too many prayers for that. Read too many Bible passages for that. Heard too many sermons for that. This word is powerful. If you let it be powerful in your life, God will work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. If you let him, he wants to. We are not asking God. You know, the, the kid, Dad, will you give me a, a fish? Here, take a serpent. No, no, no. The Lord will say, fish? Can I give you two? Would you like ten? How many fish do you need? I'll, I'll, I'll pour blessings upon you. I'll be radical with the blessings I want to give you. You want a blessing? You know, sometimes we feel like God is hard up. Or, 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 or God is hard pressed to bless us. Would you forgive me? What? Lord, if it isn't too much trouble, can you give me just a little of your Holy Spirit? Don't pray that prayer. Somebody wrote that, that the Holy Spirit awaits our demand and our reception. You can afford to get in God's face. I say this in a holy way, in an appropriate way. Get right up close to God and say, I demand that you give me your Holy Spirit. i got to have it. Like I need air. Like I need water. I must have your Holy Spirit. What's God going to do in answer to that prayer? He will answer that prayer every time and do in your life what needs to be done. You don't even make excuses for sin in your life. You just don't. You can say, Lord, I need you. Jesus will flood into your life. What do you have then? You have a heart filled with the Holy Son of God. You possess the righteousness of Christ by faith. You believe that God is working in you. You know that Jesus is coming to your life. And then you grow and you grow. You make a mistake, you grow again. You, you, you made plenty of mistakes when you were learning to walk. You spent more time on your behind than you spent on your feet there for a while. But you didn't get discouraged and say, well, I think I'll just crawl for the rest of my life. You stuck at it and you grew. And when temptation comes and blindsides you because your focus is in the wrong place, you say, oh, not good. Lord, forgive me. We will go again. I'm still looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. Amen. You look to Jesus. I hope I expanded that thought earlier. The one thing that God's people aren't always good at doing is giving themselves some room, cutting themselves some slack. You're growing, join the club. Sanctification by faith is the work of a what? Lifetime. You're going to grow and grow and grow until the harvest. Just keep growing. Keep receiving nourishment from the Word of God, strength from prayer, power through the Holy Spirit. Keep growing, keep reaching, keep looking, keep progressing in faith, forgetting that which is behind. You want to press toward the mark of the high calling that we find in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friend, our best will never be good enough. So forget about your best. And remember Jesus' best. And what Jesus will do in your life. What Jesus offers you completely and freely. 
freely, without money, without price. No, we don't deserve it. Yes, we have messed up so many times. If you were God, you would have sent you to hell long ago. But that's you. God isn't you. God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He has done it. Get used to the fact and accept it and love it and welcome it. No, your best will never be good enough. God isn't looking for your best. He's looking for your permission to do his best in your life. 1952, the Olympic Games were in Helsinki, Helsinki, Finland. A 30-year-old Czech was running in Helsinki. His name was Emil Zatopek. I got the story from uh, Camille Metz. Great story. Like Zatopek, originally from Czech Republic. Czechoslovakia it was back then. I checked the story out. It's true. It's a great story. Zatopek was quite a character. His training methods were unorthodox. Training for long-distance races, he would run sprints. People say, sprints? He said, I already know how to run slow. I thought the object was to run fast. 30 years old, had an ungainly running style. Someone said he ran. When he ran, it looked like he'd been stabbed in the heart, someone said. A journalist said he runs as though his next step will be his last. Another journalist said he looks like a man wrestling an octopus on a conveyor belt. Now, I don't know what that looks like. Or maybe it looks like Emil Zatopek. He said, I did not know you were supposed to smile and run at the same time. I did not know they gave you points for style. All he wanted to do was win. And he rolls up to Helsinki. The Czech track team was kind of, kind of thin. And they said, you can, you can run kind of anything you want to run. He ran the 5,000 and, and won the gold medal. He ran the 10,000 and won the gold medal in what I believe was a world record time. You can, you can check, but I think it was a world record time. And then he ran the marathon. He said, I might as well. So he stepped up and he ran the marathon. He's running in the marathon out near the, or in the front, running alongside a British runner. And the British runner turns to Emil Zatopek. He says, well, what do you think of the race so far? No, 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 it didn't go that way. Zatopek said to the Brit, what do you think of the race so far? And the British runner said, I don't feel as though it's fast enough. Zatopek said, okay, and took off, left him behind. And Emil Zatopek, really one of the greatest runners ever to grace a track, came home with three gold medals from Helsinki, Finland. He was quite a character when the Soviets invaded a little bit after that, and they demanded that he acquiesce to their authority and represent them as the minister of sports. He said, no. They said, we'll send you to clean toilets in a uranium mine. He chose the toilets. He said, I'm not doing that for you. He was quite a guy. There was another runner a little bit after Zatopek's time who admired Zatopek greatly. His name was Ron Clark. He ran for and from Australia. He was a great athlete. He set 17 world records. As a matter of fact, in 1965, in a span of 44 days, he ran 18 races and set 12 world records. He was quite the guy. But in 1968, when the Olympic Games were in Mexico City, Ron Clark, like other athletes, was done in by the altitude. They referred to Ron Clark as the bloke who choked. He could never win the big one, in spite of winning all, setting all of these world records. Could never win the big one. And after he failed in Mexico City, he did not want to go home to Australia and face what he knew would be the avalanche of criticism. He thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and visit Zatopek. Zatopek the Great. I'm going to Prague. I'll visit Emil. He went to Prague and he spent some time staying with Emil Zatopek, who was a prince of a fellow and consoled poor old Ron Clark. The night before Clark was going to be leaving what was then Czechoslovakia, he noticed, saw Emil Zatopek, who thought he was secretly stashing something in Ron Clark's luggage. 
Well, Clark thought, oh, it's going to be a message for the outside world. You know, they live behind the Iron Curtain there in Czechoslovakia in 68. It'll be a message for the outside world or maybe a gift for somebody, a message for somebody. He sprung Zatopek as he was inserting something Zatopek was into Clark's bag. And Zatopek, all he could say was, it's because you deserve it. It's because you deserve it. Zatopek didn't know, uh, uh, Clark didn't know what to think of that. Didn't want to look in the bag. He didn't want to uncover the secret. Got back to Australia, unzipped his luggage. And there in the luggage was one of the gold medals that had been won by Emil Zatopek. And he gave it to the bloke who choked. He gave it to Ron Clark, the Australian who said 17 gold medals, sorry, who set 17, wasn't Michael Phelps, who set 17 uh, uh, world records. Gave it to the man who set 17 world records but never could win the big one. Good fellow, Ron Clark, died at the age of 78 just a couple of years ago. Because you deserved it. Because you deserved it. You know, I don't know if you're ever going to win an Olympic gold medal. I hate to rain on your parade, but if you were to ask me to make a prediction, I would predict that, no, you're probably not going to. I've got better news for you. Better than a gold medal is a golden crown. And St. Paul said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Not to me only, but to all them also who love his appearing. Friend, Christ will place on your head a crown of gold, a crown of gold that will never tarnish, that will never fade away. You won't consider yourself worthy, and that's for good reason. You will not be. Only He is worthy. But Jesus will one day pronounce you victorious, a winner, a champion, righteous, saved. Listen, as we close in prayer, would you stand with me? Just stand up. Do that as quickly as you can. And I wonder if you could stand still because we shuffle a little bit at a time like this. And I'd like to speak to your heart. Camp meeting is about over. And I want to make an appeal to you tonight. An appeal to be right with God. I'm not asking for behavior. God's not asking for that. Don't make promises to God. They are futile. Don't make promises to God. He doesn't want you to make promises to Him. Instead, He wants you to believe the promises that He makes to you. Our best will never be good enough. I wonder tonight how it is with you. I wonder tonight how it is with you. Now, if you stand here tonight and things are okay between you and God, great. Stay right where you are and pray for those around you. Don't come forward. But if things are not right between you and God. If you were to be honest tonight and say, I don't, I don't have the righteousness of Christ. I don't have Jesus in my heart. I'm not in Christ. I need what God offers me. Now I want to invite you to come forward tonight so we can pray together down here in the front. You don't have to. I'm making it easy for you to opt out. If you feel like things are okay between you and God, then stay. But I don't believe that that's the case for every one of us here tonight. I want to invite you to come forward. Somebody's going to play some music, I believe. Thank you for doing that. And as the music plays, I would encourage you to come and bring your heart to Jesus tonight. Don't leave camp meeting knowing that you came close to surrendering your heart to Jesus fully and completely. If you've not done that, and Jesus is calling to you to give him your heart, he wants to enter your life and fill you with his presence. God bless you and you and you. Just come forward. Somebody will welcome you. They'll place a card in your hand because we'd like you to make a decision for Jesus tonight. Please be praying. This isn't going to last forever, so just don't wait. Come to Christ tonight. Commit your life to him. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is the time. If you believe that right now you are in desperate need of the righteousness of Christ because you and Jesus have not been connected in recent times, this is the time to get connected, to be connected, to surrender, to yield. Now, friend, I have nothing personal, personal at stake here. I'm simply the one issuing the invitation. 
The one with something at stake here is you. You and God. You get to receive everlasting life. God gets to receive you. And that's what God wants more than anything in the world right now is you. If God doesn't have you now, then please come to Jesus right now without delay. By coming forward, you are saying, God, you can take me, all of me. Take my heart. Make of it whatever you can. Make of it whatever you will. Lord, I want salvation. The righteousness of Christ. My best will never, ever be good enough. And so, God, I want your best. I want to wait. I know what happens right now. Somebody's thinking I should go forward. Worrying about what somebody else thinks. Come on now. You can't be worrying about that. Just be concerned about what God thinks. God wants you. He wants your heart. If He doesn't have your heart, let Him have your heart. If you're stuck someplace and you've been trying for days, weeks, months, years to free yourself from that and you've been unsuccessful, bring that to Jesus now and enact your prayer. Your prayer is, God, do in my life what I cannot do myself. If you've rejoiced with Jesus but you've wandered off, if you've accepted Jesus' call in your life but you haven't ever chosen to be baptized, I want to invite you to come as well. Again, if things are right with you and God, stand and pray. Stand and pray. Pray for someone around you. But again, listen to me now. If God is calling you to be baptized, you've never made the decision, then bring your heart to Christ tonight. Come forward tonight. Tell God, Lord, here I am. Have your way in my life. If Jesus does not have your heart, I appeal to you, don't wait, but bring your heart to Jesus now. And leave tonight knowing that you are a child of God. Would you leave under a cloud? Would you leave doubting? Would you leave wondering? There's no future in that. Leave tonight rejoicing. When you reflect upon camp meeting 2017, you can say, Christ won my heart. I surrendered. Allowed Jesus to do the work in my life that he wants to do. We'll pause just a moment longer. Just a moment longer. As God speaks to your heart, are you waiting for something? Don't wait. Don't wait. If I appealed another 30 minutes, would you come forward? Okay, then, just come now. Save us the time. Just come now. Don't wait. There will never be a better time for you to bring your life to Jesus Christ. If you've never been baptized and you know you should be, come. If Jesus doesn't have your heart, bring your heart to Jesus tonight. We'll pray for you right down here. If there's something between you and God and you need for God to take that away and you want to know that there's nothing between your soul and your Savior, Christ is inviting you tonight to bring your life to Him right now. Would you wait? Why would you wait? Don't wait. Let Jesus have His way. By dying on the cross, He convinced you. He should have convinced you, endeavored to convince you. There's nothing that heaven would not do to save you. Tonight, Christ invites you. God appeals to you. I'm going to pray for you. Let me pray right now. Let me pray for you, for everyone who's come forward tonight. Let's pray together. Join your heart with me. And together with God, we pray, Father in heaven. We're grateful tonight for the knowledge that our best will never be good enough. For the blessed truth that your best in our life will always be good enough. Our hope is in you. So, Lord, work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Our hope is in the cross where Jesus died to take away our sins. That's been dealt with, friend. Jesus died for you. Now let him come into your life so that you can live for him. Tonight, Father, we rejoice. We are grateful. We're thankful. Now, people tonight who have come to you, they've come to you in faith from differing perspectives, with varying backgrounds, with varied needs. They have come to you tonight, each one, to surrender their lives fully 
that you would live in them, work in them, both to will and to do for your good pleasure. So bless them, keep them, let them leave camp meeting tonight or, or tomorrow, rejoicing that they are children of the heavenly King, that they are one with you and you are one with them. One day soon, we know Jesus is going to come back. It's our desire to be ready. We cannot be without you, and so we thank you for your righteousness. We thank you that we can continue to grow in grace, pressing toward the mark as Jesus lives in us and urges us forward. Tonight, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, our best will never be good enough, but Christ in our life will always be good enough. And for this, we praise you and thank you and love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, please say, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.